Welcome to another edition of the Cyclone Fanatic Podcast. <laughs> uh, it's football and random things. It's Victory Tuesday, the biggest Victory Tuesday of all time. The Cyclones are the champions of the 2021 PlayStation Fiesta Ball. Morale is high here on the podcast, a delayed podcast. I'm finally back from Arizona. It feels good. Hi, Jeff. Good you, to see uh, your face, man. I think the, the moral of the story is don't fly Allegiant. <laughs> uh, yes, that's one moral of the story, I suppose. Dude, the most disappointing part. So the hotel that I stayed in, uh, the first catch, few... catch, catch, catch the, uh, the listening public up to at least a little bit of getting to the hotel. Yeah. Well, okay. So the first hotel I stayed in, like the first few days I was there, this is like, I bet that the, the one night at that hotel costs more than my rent does, uh, for, for one month. And so it was like a, this was a, a swanky place, dude. This was is probably the nicest place that I'd ever slept in, in my entire life. And so I spent three days there and then I leave at 11 o'clock in the morning, a little bit before 11 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, uh, go to the airport. My flight was supposed to be at like four 30. So I sat at the airport from like 1130 until about three 30 when we got on the plane, just like sat there by myself. Didn't have it's anything weird, to do. Weird check out of the hotel time. Got to get yeah. to the airport. That, right. that weird overlap. Yeah. Like I probably could have done something and gotten a late checkout, but I also was just not that worried about it. I was like, I just want to get the hell out of here. And, yeah. uh, so I sit at the airport for all that time. We get on the flight, sit on the flight for probably 40 minutes. They come on, cancel the flight. Uh, so then all of a sudden I'm like, when I look at when the next flight is, it was on Thursday. So I'm like, okay, well, I can't stay here until Thursday, unfortunately. And, um, got to figure, so figure out something else. So I had to wait until Monday and finally got a, I had to get another hotel. When I first got my other hotel, I went to the wrong hotel. There's two holiday inns, uh, near the Phoenix airport within like two miles of each other. I went to the wrong one. So I got one Uber to that hotel, had to get another Uber to the other hotel, finally got there and was like, okay, now I'm just done. Finally ended up flying out at like noon Phoenix time. And, uh, you know, eventually made it back after a sprint through the Houston airport, uh, to make my connecting flight. And, uh, it was a, it was a real experience, man. But I'm, uh, like I said, I'm glad to be back. Glad to be able to record episode of football and random things. Officially made it back. And now we get to talk about happy things. Now we get to talk about happy things. Uh, I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what anybody on the odds and audibles or anything like that. Uh, Iowa State kicked Oregon's ass on Saturday in the Fiesta Bowl. And the best way to exemplify that is with the way that they opened the football game. Iowa State gets the ball first, starts at their own 25-yard line. 15 plays, seven minutes and 36 seconds later, the Cyclones capped the drive with a one-yard touchdown run by Brees Hall in what I think was probably the best drive we've seen from the Iowa State football team this entire season. It was uh, – I remember Dylan Sainer dropped a pass because I think he was, like, looking upfield, like mm -hmm. trying to catch one and turn upfield or whatever. He dropped a pass on, like, second down, left, like, third and four, and I was like, oh, well – I, they, they didn't do something perfectly. 
I'm, I'm call, color me surprised. They converted because I think they threw uh, like I think Charlie um, caught you know a seven yard pass on third and six, and, and then they just kept driving down the field. And the thing that we were, <clears throat> I don't know. So in the picks column, I sent, I, I wrote a thing that was like I think I had Iowa State by ten, and immediately after sending the picks column, I texted you and was like. So I only picked Iowa state by 10 because I didn't want to be the guy that ended up with locker room material for Oregon of like the Iowa state fan community thinks they're going to win by 50. Let's go and show Like I didn't want to be the guy that like gives locker room material. Uh, but in instantly text you, I was like, I legitimately don't understand how Oregon can possibly tr- move the ball consistently through four quarters and figure out Iowa state's offensive scheme with a really young roster for four quarters. I don't think it's going to happen. I genuinely don't think they can put that together. So going into that game, the thing that you feared, not necessarily feared, but like what, the, the negative side of, of expected reality, like, you know, like you could drive up to uh, drive up and stop at a red light or get a green light. It doesn't really change your travel time all that much, but you'd rather have a green light. And so I was like, okay, the, the red light possibility of this, where it's like, yeah, a little bit worse than it could be is Iowa state goes like three and out or something like that in their first drive. And then they always will give up, or it seems like they're always going to give up a touchdown or a scoring drive in the first quarter of the game. Just we've talked about it long enough and coach Haycock kind of confirmed the, the, the analysis. And so like, the red light thinking is okay. Iowa state goes three and out Oregon scores a couple touchdowns and you got to dig yourself back out. And it ultimately ends up being something you can pull away from, but the first quarter the, you know, quarter and a half is a little bit stressful. Well, offensively, they did not leave it to be stressful. Their first drive, like you said, was 15 plays and it never really felt like it was in doubt. And then defensively, Oregon, Oregon's offense for Iowa State's defense did what we kind of expected in the first drive or two is move down the field, successfully do what you're going to do. Iowa State needs to see what you're going to do before, you know, they're able to make the adjustments to, to do anything. And then you're like, okay, maybe it was a fluke on the first drive and Oregon's going to get figured out. No, that is in fact not what happened after the first drive of 15 plays and seven and a half minutes, Iowa State goes, you know what? Let's hold the ball for longer in the second drive. So Iowa state goes 15 plays, 75 yards, 736 in the first drive, second drive or Oregon takes the ball seven plays for three minutes. And now we're all even at seven to seven. Iowa state gets the ball back and goes 14 plays for eight minutes and nine seconds. In the first two drives, Iowa state had the ball for a quarter of the game and Oregon could do nothing about it. And I was like, all right, we're going to be fine. This game is going to end up extremely comfortable. Yeah, and like I – I don't know. On those first two offensive drives, like I think the only two plays that I remember where it really even felt like they did anything remotely wrong was one, the one when Dylan Sanger dropped the ball, and then the other when uh, they threw – like basically the same exact play is probably an RPO or something like that. And they, they threw it out to Charlie and I think he lost one yard. And other than that, like every play that they had was positive and Brock was throwing the ball well. And like, you could just tell that they kind of had Oregon on skates and um, like, I just, I never felt like they were going to be able to match the physicality of Iowa state's offense, which I'll give them some credit. Like in the second half, I thought that their defense played considerably better, but I also think Iowa state took the foot off the gas and didn't really try that hard to try and 
go right at them. And I mean, like if you want to look at, it's like when Iowa state would play Kansas state some of those times, or even when they've played Iowa sometimes where like Iowa will score one late and that'll make the game look a little bit, you know, like the game wasn't as close as what it maybe was Mm -hmm. when you control the football for whatever it was, 48 minutes, 46 minutes, like Iowa state did. I mean, like, I don't know. You can't sit here and ever say like, you know, that was on us. It's like, no, that team literally just played keep away from you the entire game for Mm -hmm. the entire game. They had the ball for three quarters of the football game. That's, I mean, that's insane. It's insanity. And it was just, it was where Iowa state executed at such a high level for basically the entirety of the game. Well, and so one of the things that like, this was the most Matt Campbell game of all of the games that Iowa state's played uh, because it has so many kind of hallmark elements of things that make sense when you can win in the margins, like this, the winning in the margins things, you know, he said it a lot is, and to, I don't know if we've really dug super deep into what winning in the margins means, but it's that like, it is that game. And the reason why that game never felt close one is time of possession. And it's not the most important stat of all time. Um, because, you know, you look at Alabama, like Alabama and last year, LSU, like, it's not that they would, they wouldn't necessarily out time of possession. You, they would just get up and down the field so fast that like, you're like, or, or any, you know, really high, like high potency Oregon or uh, Oklahoma offense where like, you got Kyler Murray, he has the ball for two and a half minutes. He's probably scored a touchdown already, like that kind of thing. So time of possession is not in and of itself uh, an indicator of who's winning the game, but when you want to control time of possession and you do, that's when it's a big difference is when you're looking to control time of possession and successfully accomplish it. That's one of the, the margins things that, that you talk about, which is if you need, if you want the ball and you can hold on to the ball, whew, that is tough to overcome. Well, I mean, it's just an ultimate playing field leveler. It's why army is always so tough. It's why army can go and play Oklahoma to in a tough game. You know, because like, think about that game that they played a couple of years ago that I think went to double overtime and mm-hmm. army controlled the ball for like 47 minutes and Oklahoma, Oklahoma still scored 49 points. You Oklahoma, know? Oklahoma in regulation in that game. I remember they had seven possessions. Yeah. They had the ball seven times in that entire game. And they scored on all of them. And yeah, it was like, they, were, they scored on all of them, but then army scored on all of theirs too. And it was like, they did just sort of a perfect job. And it was like, if army could have stopped them once, they would have won the game, you know, Mm -hmm. but that's just how good Oklahoma was. And it's like, but most teams obviously are not that good. But uh, if you get into a position where like when I, if Iowa state can play that way against anybody, any team in the, in the country, if Iowa state could do that, they win. I I strongly believe that you like, you're probably not going to do that to Alabama, probably not going to do that to Clemson or Ohio state, but if you could, you're winning. Like I, because I am confident enough that Iowa state could get one stop in that kind of scenario. And, and so that's one of like, just talking about like the margins, like time of possession is one of the margins, but like you think it's not time of possession in and of itself. That is the thing that's important. It's in order to get time of possession, you have to have a ton of consistent success. Like time of possession indicate if you have a, a high t- amount of time of possession again, and you want a lot of time of possession is you've got first and 10, on five or six different sets of like five or six different sets of first and 10 all the way down the field. 
And that means that you've gotten first downs, you've gotten positive, you've gotten positive runs. You've actually fit everything successfully or, or blocked everything successfully. You're moving the ball consistently. So it's, that's one part of it. The other part is I think Iowa state had four penalties for 20 yards and all of them were false starts. And so, yeah, that's not ideal. You don't want to false start anytime, but if you can be four penalties for 20 yards, you don't turn the ball over You're plus five in turnover margin. You're 42 and a half minutes in time of possession and you're rushing at, or you have what 40 something carries. I don't remember what the, even the exact total number of rushing attempts was uh, rushing attempts, 56 rushing attempts for 239 yards. Like margins, you don't beat yourself. You take advantage of the stuff that you can take advantage of and you optimize every possession. Like this is another a statistic that's really fun. Like it doesn't, it doesn't apply in most games because it, it's really hard to, it's really hard to quantify when you're not dominating it, but of possible available yardage, meaning wherever you get the ball on offense, driving all the way down leaves zero uh, available yards because you got, if you got the ball on the 25 yard line, you have, you have on that drive, 75 yards that you can gain. So of possible available yardage, uh, Iowa state gained 99% of possible available yardage in the first half. The only, because they got stopped at the half yard line on a fourth down and every other drive that they had the ball, they scored except for a kneel down at the end of the half, which I don't think is, is counts in the statistic. They literally, their drive chart was touchdown, touchdown, fourth down, stop at the goal line, touchdown, touchdown, kneel down. That was their entire first half drive chart. And man, if I don't know how much more efficient an offense can, uh, an offense could possibly be. And then the second half, uh, it, the domination flipped to the other side of the ball and if we look at second half drives, Oregon was punt or fumble, punt, fumble, punt, interception was their drive chart in the second half. I mean, that was, it just, it was, it was an impressive Matt Campbell perfection game against Oregon. Yeah. And, um, like I, I just, I, you take solace in like, Iowa State going and just beating the shit out of a power five team, you mm -hmm. know, a quality one, like what, no matter what you think about how Oregon got into the Pac-12 championship game, they still won the Pac-12 championship, you know, and they obviously didn't play Washington. So like, we can't sit here and say like whether or not Washington was better, they didn't play each other. <laughs> I mean, and like that's on Washington for not being able to play the game. And uh, it's just, a, it's one of those things where you're like, it, it kind of validates like what we've thought about this team, you know, and what this team could be. And you could tell early on in the game that I, that Oregon was surprised by what they, by like the position they were put in. Mm -hmm. And um, early on, you know, I know, I know Brent talked about this on his podcast with Chris the other night, but they, Which, if you I, haven't listened to the Sunday night podcast by Brent and Chris, it was, it's really good. So just a plug, a yeah. plug there anyway. Uh, um, but I'll, you know, I'll confirm what Brent said where early on in the game, I don't know that I've seen a team talk as much as that one did. And I mean, everybody, everybody, they talked after every play, both sides of the ball, offense and defense on every play. Anytime that they did anything good, they were letting you know when they didn't do something good, they were letting you know. And, um, 
they had the amount of respect I think that they had for Iowa State was so minimal that it was like they they were just gonna talk they were gonna show off you know it was all about the confidence and all about the swagger when Brees scored his last touchdown at the end of the first half the one that uh where he pushed the defensive back into the end zone and then there was you know a little bit of a I guess discussion would be the best way to put it because there wasn't any you know scuffling or anything like that that was the point I texted you and I said this defense is done they're not having a very fun afternoon like you could tell that the physicality had really worn on them at that point. And they were frustrated. They did not know what to do. They'd been on the field for the entire first half, basically. And, you know, when I was watching them run into the tunnel at halftime, I was just like, man, these guys do not want to be here anymore. Like they just, they look like they're just ready to go home. And, um, you know, I think you could see it on the sidelines in the second half. I texted you at one point. I was like, I know that Oregon doesn't really want to be here anymore because mm-hmm. the only guy that looks like he wants to be here is one equipment manager who's waving a, tow- a towel around. Everybody else is just like standing there chilling. Like anytime, even if they do something good, like everybody's just kind of like, good job, boys. Good mm-hmm. job. Like there was just no juice whatsoever. They were just like, man, we've gotten our butts kicked. Like we've got our tail between our legs at this point. Well, and I think where that comes from, like, and, and so what that feeling, like to correlate that feeling is, uh, most people have been in this position. I know I have at least a few times is you studied for a test. You were prepared. You thought you were prepared for the test. And then you get six questions into the test and you have not a concept of any semblance of a right answer. And you are totally stumped but you've got the other 34 questions left on that test. You, you know that you really want to like, I need to buckle down, but like, you're already so mad that you're like, this is freaking stupid. Like how, I, 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 I prepared, I studied, but apparently didn't study the right stuff. The stupid freaking test and the stupid, and like that's that sort of mindset is what it feels like when you're on the receiving end of a beatdown like that, um, that you thought you were prepared for. And then you weren't. And so it's the frustration of being like, I know that when, when we came into this with the expectation that it was going to go much differently than it has right now. And from a football perspective, the thing that's, that's really interesting or not really interesting, really enjoyable to be on the positive end of is it's, it's frustrating when you get physically beaten, but when you can kind of know that like, man, we could out scheme them. If we played them again, we could out scheme them and that like, if we could, we could do this and we could beat them again. But the problem is, is when you get out schemed and outplayed. And like, when you look at the specifically, it's the offensive first half and the defensive second half uh, for Iowa state and, and, you know, inverse the, 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 their respective opposing Oregon counterparts. When Iowa state was on offense in the first half and we, we talked about it going in and this was the number one thing that gave me confidence from an Iowa state offensive perspective was not the personnel. It was the fact that most of those guys on Oregon were young. They, so they've not seen a lot of football generally because they also had only played six games. And so you have a really young roster that's only played six games now going up against a team like Iowa state. And when you trade receivers, that's, that's one thing. But when you trade tight ends, that's a totally different thing. Because again, we talked about it in depth is an offense or a defense identifies the strength of the offense 
primarily by the tight ends and some will do it by, uh, you know, a different key, like maybe, maybe, and even some of these defenses might say, all right, number 11 is where the strength goes. And if number 11 is not on the field, then it's number 88. Like they might have like certain keys to it, but when you have three tight ends and a fullback, like Jared Russ was playing enough that it became essentially 14 personnel, like one running back and four tight or four tight ends and fullbacks. And when you have four different three to four different tight ends and fullbacks, starting in one place and trading or motioning or, or uh, zipping across and then whatever you, you, you move all those pieces and you've got about, so again, to rehash what we talked about before, you're a linebacker and you're looking at the offense. You have two tight ends in your left and one tight end who is attached right next to the tackle on your right and play clocks at 27 seconds. And then all of a sudden one tight end motions over from the left, from your left to your right. The other tight end bumps in and is now over the guard on your left, which is a completely different look. Now you're two and one in the other direction. And you're like, okay, I think the strength is now on the right side. And they move over there with 12 seconds in the play clock and they snap it with eight seconds, in the play clock. So you have four seconds to redo your entire understanding of what your defense looks like. And all 11 dudes have to go through that same procedure and agree on what it is in four seconds and your talent and your understanding of what your responsibilities are is one thing when you can actually like take a good picture of what the offense is going to be, but then they like shake up the etch a sketch and go, all right, here, you got to figure out what's going to be on here. And there is just no way. So like, if you were to rewatch that game, when don't watch, um, don't watch Iowa state watch Oregon in their responses to Iowa state before the snap. So like you'll see tight end move across and then three linebackers move two defensive linemen move. Then the linebackers have to come like slap the, the, the side of the hip or the butt of one of the, the other defensive linemen that didn't move to get them to move, then get back in their alignment and then hope that they end up in the right spot. And then you'll see another defensive lineman about three seconds later move because he thinks like, Oh shoot, I forgot to do it. So you have this like popcorn motion of resetting everything and they never knew what, where they were going to be. So bring that back to that frustration. like kind of like being flat on the sideline is they got confused. Like they probably felt really stupid and they got their ass kicked. So like they were out mentally, they, they were out they're mentally beaten as well as physically beaten because the scheme that Iowa state brought is hard to deal with. And then you got these big farm boys from the Midwest beating the shit out of you while you're confused. It just, it was such, it, it, it was, it was as good as we thought it could be. And I can completely understand why they would just be like, man, screw this game. I don't want to be here anymore. I'm frustrated. I'm confused. And my shoulder hurts. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to find, there was one, there was one quote that I saw that um, I thought really kind of, like that really stuck out to me when I saw it, but I can't, I can't seem to find it now. Um, and it was from an Oregon guy where he said, basically, you know, like he's, he said, basically like, I don't think that they were the best offensive line that we saw all season, 
you know, which like very well could be true. Like if mm-hmm. I think we can objectively sit here and like look at Iowa state's offensive line, are they one of the best offensive lines in the country? Talent wise, probably not, you know, like they don't have a bunch of guys who are probably going to go be first round NFL draft picks or something like what maybe a USC does. Well, at least but, maybe not this version. Cause maybe yeah, well, yeah, guys are probably the best NFL draft prospects are Remsburg and Downing and they didn't even play. Yeah. Well, but what I'm saying is like, I don't think that they maybe they probably were like, they weren't maybe the most talented offensive line that we've seen, but at the same time, like they were really good in being more physical than us, you know, and you can't like, and I don't think you can discount that, you know, and it's where like, they're not the most, they're, they're technically sound and they're going to beat the hell out of you. And you might not always feel like they're the most talented guys that are across from you, but at the end of the day, like they're going to get their job done, you know? And you know, I thought that that was just what it was for that line up front where like, even there were times where, man, we got to give some credit to Brock Purdy was phenomenal in the mm-hmm. game. And uh, there were times where Brock had to make plays with his legs where he had to uh, avoid people. He made some throws under pressure that he ma- hadn't really, we didn't definitely didn't see him making that Oklahoma game uh, you know, where he had to make some of those big time throws with the guy in his face. And um, you know, it, I can see where an Oregon guy, like you're getting frustrated because you're like, man, like we've played better offensive lines than this, but we still can't stop them, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, just, I thought that it was a, a masterful performance from the Iowa state offense because it was just them at, at, like operating it as high a level as what they probably can, um, you know, as an individual unit, when you look at what the personnel is right now, because I thought that Brock played one of his best games of the season, the play that he made where uh, he tried to, to escape the pocket to his left and then came back to the right and dove to get the first down. I mean, that's a, if you want to look, you like, you want to say what makes Brock pretty special is those kinds of plays, you know, well, and I was getting chased by Kayvon Thibodeau. Right. And that's what I'm saying. Like that's, those are the kinds of plays that's Brock just being Brock and just out there making a play and doing everything that he can to make sure that he helps his team stay on the field. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's like what I just feel like this offense is. It's a bunch of guys who are just grinders. They're not the ones that are going to draw all the headlines. Obviously, Brees got a lot of them this year, but like, they're just like, man, we just want to go out there and we want to do our job and we're just going to keep playing and keep playing hard. And some teams can stand up to that stuff, but some can't. And I think that it was proven that Oregon just can't take that punch in the mouth. Like maybe some others can. And I, and this is another thing that um, um, Chris and Brent talked about on the the Sunday night podcast, just another shout out to them and and go listen to that if you haven't. The more you think about that game, the more fun it is to think about that game. Because when you think about people that contributed, who's uh, really other than the tight end position, which I think at this point, uh, I, this is not, this isn't like insider information. I think Charlie and uh, Saner would be my bet that aren't going to come back. Like if I'm, if I'm those guys, I would leave. So this is not projecting to say they will or won't, but like, let's say that those guys aren't going to come back. Pretty much everybody else is going to be re- returning from that offense. Again, Sean Foster's already said he's going to come back. So Iowa state is going to return eight starters on offense from a five person unit with all five that started in that position, plus Downing plus Remsburg uh, and 
um, other guard that, that ended up playing brain fart. Uh, Simmons. So no Simmons, Simmons, Schweigert and Hufford brain fart. Hufford. Yeah. Hufford. So you have those guys that ended up playing significant snaps throughout the season. You have eight of those guys coming back. You have Brock coming back. You have, uh, Brees, you have Jirel Brock you know, coming back. We'll see about Kane. I don't know. Um, you'll see there's Sean Shaw's coming back. Xavier's coming back. Tariq is, I mean, the, as cool as it is to look at that game and be like, man, Iowa state beat Oregon's ass you get to see that team mostly again next season. Like most people are going to come back from that, from this roster to do the same thing again. And that's another conversation that we'll have, um, you know, probably next week or the week after once we actually kind of know and we'll be able to break down, like what, what does Iowa state need to do in this off season or improve upon whatever, once we have a better idea of the personnel, but it's just cool to look at that Oregon game and be like, this wasn't a fluke. This wasn't a, you stumbled upon a, a pot of gold with a bunch of seniors that uh, all graduated at the same time. And they all matured at the same time. And, you know, like the, what is the 2000 team that had like 27 seniors and mm. like, it's not that like, it's all right. This team was really good and they beat the hell out of Oregon and most of the teams in their schedule. And you look, you get to look towards next year, like, all right, well, they should be just as good. Like there, there shouldn't be a drop off at all, if any relative to the rest of the teams. So like, that's the fun part even still is like you watch that game and know that it's not just like a culmination. It's not the end of a line that you're like, we got to experience, you know, like, <clears throat> like it doesn't feel like, um, the, was it 2012 basketball season when it was George and Monte and, uh, Naz and Matt Thomas and, and you got to experience like, all right, these guys are going to go to the NBA and we've got one more squeeze out of this group and it, you know, whatever we got to win the big 12. And like, there it was like wasn't 15, that. Like the 15, 15 16 15. season. Yeah. It wasn't You're getting that. old Jeff. The years run together. I know. You see my hairline. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's not that, you know, we're like, you know, that it's going to be the end of the ride and you just got to enjoy it while it's there. It's like, this is, the, the ascendance still like you're clicking up on the roller coaster and you got to enjoy one little mini like downhill ride. That was fun. But now you get to click back up on the roller coaster again, just because this team's talented. It's talented and good again. Mm -hmm. All right. For sure. We'll talk and we'll talk about that a lot more uh, as we move forward, but let's just give all kind of our keep final thoughts, you know, on this season and got to give shout out to the professor. You mentioned it a little bit before. I mean, the professor's gambit, played out perfectly uh you know he gave up some pawns early in the game in order to get the queen later and i think you could tell in the second half how little confidence they had in what their offense was able to do when they started just switching the quarterbacks kind of at random like i felt like there was no like early on in the game it seemed like maybe there was a little bit of a rhyme or reason to when they would change the quarterbacks but like as the second half started and like they're just throwing guys out there i was like oh they have no idea what to do like they, they don't have any, they're just grasping for straws at this point. Yeah. They're hoping they can catch lightning in a bottle with, you know, one of these guys getting hot for a drive and, you know, and, and you can maybe make it work, but that's, that's not how it works. Like you don't accidentally succeed against Iowa state's defense. You, you have to have a plan. You have to have an idea of what you're doing and be able to change your idea on the fly. And that did not happen. 
Right. And it's, it's obviously tough because they've never played against it, you know, but it's still just where it's like, I mean, I would say never really got consistent pressure. Oregon did a good job of getting the ball out quick uh, against Iowa state's pressure, but it was just like, you could just see where eventually it was like the dam was going to break and Iowa state was going to force some turnovers on something. They forced a couple, like they forced the fumbles, but like, it seemed just primed for eventually Will McDonald to get loose and for him to get like for them to force an interception, which obviously they did really late in the game. But like, I, you never had any concern about that unit, you know? And I don't know, man, like that just that, that defense right there, like forever. I feel like John Haycock, when he talks about what he wants his defense to be, what that scheme is supposed to be, that's the team. Like that group right there is exactly like what that scheme is supposed to be. And you have so many guys who are playing the position that they were brought to Ames, Iowa to play and that they are doing it at such a high level that it's like, you just, you can see like, this is what the defense is supposed to be. You know, you could see that a couple of years ago, maybe with Clemson, like when they first started playing that and they had, I mean, at every level, like they had guys that were going to go and be first. Yeah, round like guys. Simmons and yeah, like they don't, they don't line group. Yeah. Like they don't have that right now. Like as good as Brent Venables is like that defense is really young. Uh, mm-hmm. if you look at it top to bottom, um, but like the one that they had when they won the title against Alabama a couple of years ago, it was like, you looked at that and you're like, this is what the defense is when you can operate at a really, really high level. Well, this is what Iowa state's defense is when it can operate at a really, really high level. And you hope moving forward, obviously that you can get to where, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, like you hope to where you can get where you don't have to maybe give up as many points early in the game as what Iowa state has had a tendency to do at times. And you can start to make those adjustments a little bit quicker and maybe get a better idea earlier in the game of like what the team's going to do against you. But still it's like, mm-hmm those second halves where Iowa state allowed 20, they allowed 26 second half points in their last six games, 26. That's what three, like a little bit more than three points, uh, three points, a, a, or four points, I guess a half. That's insane. I mean, that's just absolute insanity. And that's against good teams. That's, that's against the big against 12. Like that's, that's against big that's 12 against teams. And that's Texas, that's Oklahoma, that's West Virginia, that's Oregon. Like those are good teams. That's not, you're not playing Kansas every week. Like that's not the, the, the barometer on that statistic. That is good teams at critical times in your season. And you give up, what was it? Zero, three, six, or something like that. Zero, three, seven, six, like that number of points throughout the, the, the in the second half games, um, what's interesting to me now, like, and this is, again, you, you can't talk totally exclusively about a bowl game without like sort of projecting into the off season. Um, what's interesting to me is how are other teams going to approach this defense now? You know, like you, at, at this point, you, if you are worth your salt, which I think you can look at at least a few coaching staffs that are worth pretty a significant amount more than salt, like Gundy and Lincoln Riley and like the Gary Patterson staff. And you would imagine the Sarkeesian staff at Texas, which is a whole nother can of worms, but you'd imagine they're going to get going to be able to figure out like, okay, let's sit down and actually like look through the games that we're going to be playing this year. And what are we going to do to Iowa state? What are we going to do to Oklahoma? What are we going to do to, you know, fill in the blank on those different rosters? how are teams going to approach this knowing that 
Iowa State's not going anywhere. Like this isn't a, you know, potentially you could look and say this season, Iowa State kind of jumped up at least in the, you know, they were preseason with like 17 or something like that. That's usually where like TCU starts, you know, like they probably, Iowa State was probably viewed at the start of the season, like a TCU, like a, um, a good Kansas state team every once in a while. I was like, they're going to, they'll get you, but they're going to, they're going to get in their own way and they're going to end up, you know, their talent's going to run short somewhere and they're going to end up losing the, the, you know, one or two or three or four games and they'll be out of the, like, it's not that big of a deal. Well, that's not going to be the case next year. Iowa state is going to come into next season. I think Oklahoma will probably, as far as like a big 12 title odds, like Oklahoma's probably going to be like, two to one or four to one or something like that. Not two to one. That's probably really high, like four to one odds or something like that. Iowa state is going to be seven to one, eight to one, like right behind them. Then Texas will be like 12 to one. And then there's going to be a huge gap. And then everybody else like Iowa state now has put themselves in the bullseye of every other team that they have to be reckoned with. Like you have to go go into your off season, like teams do against Oklahoma and say, Hey, how are we going to slow down Oklahoma next year? Iowa state is now, all right, what the hell are we going to do against this defense? You know, we, it's, we were not able to run the ball. We were not able to do X, Y, and Z. You're, teams are going to have to go and approach Iowa State like a threat. And I'm curious what that means for next year when teams try and adjust. Because obviously, <laughs> Haycox and, and Campbell and the defensive staff aren't just going to be like, all right, we're perfect. Let's just rest on our loyals, laurels and call it a year. You know, like they're, they're going to adjust and change things and improve things as well. I'm willing, I'm, to bet the, I'm willing to bet the professor's already back in the film room today. Yeah, probably. And, you know, I bet he, you know, I, I don't know what his relationship with other coordinators are, but like starting to set up what, you know, Iowa State and Clemson, that's st- those coaching staffs are, I would, I would consider, I don't know if friends is the right word, but like professionally friendly. And I would imagine like sometime this off season, Venables and Haycock and Campbell and Davo are going to get together and be like, Hey, what, you know, what did we learn? Like, how can we improve ourselves from this off season to the next season? Like you're, you, it's going to consistently happen where like, you're going to get better and better and better. But looking at the second half, like with the Oregon game, the second half defense was the same second half defense that we saw in the back half of the year. Iowa state's offense was, uh, more or less the same offense that we saw all year. They didn't get, they didn't have the same number of big plays that we kind of came, became accustomed to um, in like the set specifically in the back half of the season where you, you know, Xavier busts one or Charlie catches a 35 yard seam route or something like that. Like they didn't have those or, or more specifically uh, a big breeze run. Like none of those big plays happened, but that game was a basically a, like I said, a perfect Matt Campbell game. It was like a microcosm of what they were trying to do on the entire season outside of big plays, but going into next year or going to the off season, how people are going to approach Iowa state is just like a curiosity that I have of like, what are they going to be doing to think about us in the next year? You know, I say us, I'm putting myself on the team, but like uh, to, to think about Iowa state in this off season, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're Lincoln Riley, how do you not spend the entire offseason being like, okay, if there's one defense I need to study, it's this one, you know? Like, I, I need to figure out where the weakness is, you know? How do we attack this? Because <laughs> there's no defense that's been able to consistently slow down that offense better than that one, you know, in the last 
four years. Like this is not just this year. Like that scheme has been able to slow them down better than any other for four years. And um, that's where I feel like that's like going to be the biggest thing, you know, moving forward. It's like, how do the other teams adjust to them? Um, all right, really quick. I've got to do a radio interview here in just a couple minutes. So we're going to have to, um, to sign off here before too long, but before we, before we do, uh, let's give some, some parting shots to a couple guys. First one, the artist formerly known as number 19, uh, is headed into the sunset as the all-time sack King at Iowa state, the all-time leader in tackles for loss. Um, going to the NFL, Jaquan Bailey, man, talk about a kid who grew up, dude, in his time yeah. wearing the Cardinal and gold. It, it's hard to not, you know, look back at his career and just be incredibly proud of what he did, not only on the field, but who he became as a person, uh, the leader that he became. You can tell that he is someone who, uh, you know, we talk about the culture changers, the ones that are the Mount Rushmore, the ones that like have turned things around. You know, there's David Montgomery, Alan Lazard, Joel Lanning, man, you'd have a hard time keeping Jaquan Bailey off that list in my mind at this point, because I don't know that there's been anybody who made as big an impact on, on the defense statistically, especially as what he did. Well, and he, between guys like him and, and Ray Lima and any Wazirike, they were able to run the system that we've been talking about for 30 minutes now. And, you know, a, a big portion of the year, because you can't run that system without defensive ends that can get pressure and also hold up in the run game on a consistent basis. And Jaquan Bailey early in his career was not good at either one because he would. And, and for those that say the artist formerly known as number 19, he wore number 19, but this is more specifically for those longtime fans of uh, fart and that was Fart's the CFTV live days, dude. And Fart's predecessor, CFTV live. Yeah. That when we would break down little clips of Iowa state defensively in like 2018 or 2017 and Jaquan when he was wearing number 19 was constantly in the wrong spot. He was constantly doing dumb stuff and he was a freshman. He was, you know, and coming out of the crib, coming out of Florida, like a lot of times talent will take you a good, a, a good bit, but the responsible ones and the guys that mature understand, like, I can't just survive on talent alone. I have to figure out how to, how to be better. And in doing that kind of the maturity that comes with it, the, uh, this is how, what work ethic is. He's able to inspire. I, I bet Will McDonald isn't half of what he is without Jaquan Bailey, whether or not it's been taken a direct mentorship role, which I don't know if it has. He has, he has that Jaquan talked a lot about Will last week. The best quote that came out of it was, uh, I'm quoting Jaquan. He said, uh, he said, our conversations are like, Hey, hey, bruh, 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 bruh. If you, if you ain't finna sack him, I'm finna sack him, bruh. <laughs> Crib, man. Crib. Um, but it, it, Will McDonald's not Will McDonald without Jaquan Bailey, yeah. which means you guys, you got like Peterson, both, both Peterson and future three Petersons that are going to be on that defensive line. Those guys don't become who they are really without Jaquan Bailey and like setting the foundation that the, the strength of this defense lies at all levels, but it has to start up front and Jaquan being able to do that is, yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous turnaround, a tremendous turnaround. Another one that I think deserves a shout out and we, we don't know this officially, but I would be very surprised to see 
Greg Eisworth come back, especially based on some of the comments he made last week about leaving his jersey in a better spot and all those kinds of things. Um, I don't think that he will be back. Another one that is in a very similar situation also belongs in a very similar conversation as those other guys because he is the – as you know, Ray Lima was the one that it's like they could go to the original three-man front and do that because of what Ray Lima could do. Mm-hmm. But the three safeties and, like, how good that that became – that was because of number 12 and the mm-hmm. kind of guy that he was. And eventually he changed from positions, you know, played a little bit of a different spot. And then Ishim Young is now playing that position. But like that guy, if you want to look at the one that like took this defense from being solid and being the like ultimate bend don't break to being the one that could like really make plays and like really go out and challenge people, it was number 12. And mm-hmm. uh, he's another guy that like, we're just, I'm just going to miss seeing him flying around wearing Cardinal and gold because that guy put his body on the line. Uh, for Iowa State in each and every week. And, you know, he's a, that's a football player right there, my man. Yeah. And, and again, you, you look at a guy like Aishim Young, like you can measure, not necessarily measure a person by their legacy, but it's one indicator of how, how, how do you, do they leave the, the, the thing that they did in a better place than when they got there? And Greg Eisworth, the safety room, when you look at the safety room now, man, that is a bright position group. That is a very bright position group, starting with Aishin Young. Like, Aishin Young is a dude that if he doesn't end up playing on Sundays, I'd be shocked. If Aishin Young, Aishin Young will be an All-American at Iowa State. I'm, yeah. I'm confident in that. And you see a guy like Aishin who gets to learn from a guy like Greg, which I think personnel, like the way that they play are drastically different. Like, Aishin wants to take limbs off of your body when he makes a tackle where Greg is just Mr. Fundamental. Like he wants, I mean, he'll, he'll thump people, but like he's Greg is just Mr. Fun, like always in the right spot, always doing the right thing, being the right tackler or, you know, being the right technician. And then Aishim is just, I mean, a, a friggin' sports car with a spoiler, just boom all the time. And he can, I, Aishim can learn to be in the right spot because when you take that type of aggressive aggressiveness and talent, but don't put it in the right direction. It doesn't really do anything. You're, you're very, rather than being five yards out of position, you're 12 yards out of position because you're getting there so fast, but being able to be in the right spot, you know, credit the entire offensive or defensive coaching staff, but also credit guys like guy, Greg, guys like Greg to be able to pass on. And Lawrence white uh, also is just being able to pass on. Here's how you do what you need to do. And then, once you understand that, then you can start putting your own individual personality on it. Mm-hmm. All right. And then the last one uh, is the only other one that we really know pretty certainly that he probably isn't going to be coming back. And uh, we can talk about Charlie later because I think that that one probably is still kind of 50, 50 uh, what's going to end up happening there. Um, and we'll probably know that I would imagine by the end of this week, but number 89, Dylan Saner, uh, a guy that when he got to Iowa state, it would have been shocking to think that he was going to play tight end his entire career. And uh, the kind of player that he is now, I mean, that dude's going to play on Sundays. He's going to make himself a whole bunch of money playing the game of football. And um, he, another guy put his body on the line. If if you want to know pain, I bet there's nobody on the team that felt more pain week after week than Dylan Saner did, because the only way he could get tackled was to dive straight at his shins. And uh, I don't want to know what the bruises on his shins look like, because I imagine that they, they hurt, hurt. I could tell you, I could tell you it's, it's, he's about six inches taller and about 30 pounds heavier, but the same kind of principle applies of 
that is a, it's a hell of a beating, but the thing that Saner did uh, better than, you know, guys like what I would say guys like me did, or, or, you know, scene Buckner, scene Buckner is when you can become an addition or a threat in the receiving game beyond what you can do blocking, then that makes both attributes much harder to deal with. Because if you're a defensive end or a linebacker or whatever, you see 89 coming at you and he doesn't have a reception at all in his career. You know, Jared Russ come, is coming at you and he doesn't have a reception. You know that it's probably going to be a block. Like there, you, can, you can put a lot, of, a lot more stank into taking on that blocker, that person that's running at you. And it makes blocking a lot harder when they can come with 100% of their lunch pail into you. But when you can do what Dylan Sainter did and be that really good blocker and use all six, eight, six, seven of, you know, two seventy of you in blocking, but then at the same time, have the game like you did against in the, the Texas game and, and like Baylor and those games where it becomes a receiving threat is that could be a, that could be a bootleg. It could be an influence block coming at you. You can't as a defender now sell out and try and take on the blocker because he might just, you know, put a head and shoulder fake in and, now he's in the flat and is going to catch a 14 yard pass. And so being able to convert your game into being, instead of just being a, uh, a true tight end, or instead of just being a true blocker, instead of just being a true fullback or whatever, he kind of formed a morphed position, which made all of them better. And I, I mean, shout out to that dude for, you, you know, last year, I think uh, in the 2019 season, um, coach Campbell highlighted Orion Vance and being like, this dude was the best player on our defense in spring ball and fall camp. And we couldn't keep him off the field. We had to find a way, you know, Mike was going to, Mike Rose was going to be a middle linebacker to bump him out to Sam to make room for Orion, Orion Vance. Well, Dylan Sander did the same thing. Like he put himself in a position from an indispensability standpoint, like we got to figure out a way to get three tight ends in the field. We know that chase is really good. We know that Charlie's really good. We've got to get number 89 in the field. All right, let's figure it out. And now it has become a thing that is like synonymous with Iowa state, which is three tight end looks and a really he just a heavy running game. And mm -hmm. like that happened because number 89. For sure. What a team, man. What a team. What a year. It's been a lot of fun doing this podcast with you and, and talking about them and I'm um, looking forward to uh, turning the page to, to next season. So we'll talk to everybody again next week. We'll recap the national championship game and all that stuff uh, here on football and random things on the cycle Fanatic podcast network. Peace.